Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to, or good morning, and welcome to the Global Council expert panel, which we're going to be hosting for the next hour looking at the current crisis in Ukraine. The Global Council team has a unique set of perspectives drawn from the colleagues from across uh, the globe, and we are joined by a handful of them today. What we're going to do is we're going to hear from Alexander Smatrov, who leads our uh, Eastern European practice, who will share some points of view as to where, th- where he sees things going from uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, perspective. Uh, Denzel Davidson is going to share some views both from the UK and the EU. Uh, Miranda Lutz in Washington is going to set out where we see things heading from the US. And then Thomas Grotowski, our practice lead uh, for um, the Global Macro, senior practice lead for Global Macro, will share where he sees wider economic and political trends going. The way that we're going to organize this call is that we're going to have a conversation uh, amongst ourselves for about 45 minutes, and then we're going to have some questions. So please feel free to put them into the, the chat. Uh, Alexander, let me hand over to you for you to kick off the discussion. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. And um, obviously, it has been a very dramatic uh, week with uh, events unfolding very, very quickly uh, on the ground and on the um, all um, geopolitical levels, but also um, in the practical um, dimension of uh, the Western uh, response to the Russian uh, actions uh, in Ukraine. So we've been watching this uh, very closely from different uh, perspectives. And uh, as for uh, the Russian plans, uh, obviously no one could uh, definitely tell you now uh, where the end point of the situation uh, is. But as we can see, uh, um, yeah, there is some uh, Russian advancement on the ground. And the, uh, among the possible scenarios which uh, we can envisage, it's either as some kind of um, partial uh, control uh, by uh, Russia of the Ukrainian territory or uh, some further advancement with maybe some uh, attempts to change the government and install more uh, of the Russian control uh, over the country. And then uh, there might be some attempts to uh, strike some kind of a deal or agreement uh, with the rest of the world and um, we need to see how this unfolds. I'm not sure there is a clear strategy in anyone's head at the moment, including the uh, top Russian uh, elite and uh, the Kremlin itself. Uh, and it's uh, been quite tactical and opportunistic at uh, points. But also, um, yeah, there are some strategic um, uh, areas or directions we, we uh, can um, see there. And what uh, is interesting to see in the next um, days and weeks, to what extent um, the West and the NATO in general uh, would stick to its um, commitment not to directly involve in the conflict uh, in terms of uh, military um, uh, action, and to what extent it might shift, to what extent this weapons uh, um, uh, uh, supplies, uh, strategy, and uh, troops movements might uh, shift as well. And on the sanctions point of view, so we've seen that uh, the sanctions so far have been matching uh, the level of uh, Russian action, and uh, it will continue. And there are still instruments uh, in the back pocket of the key decision makers in uh, the US, in the UK, and uh, in the EU, and some other countries who have supported uh, the sanctions. And what is interesting to see now from our perspective as well, how sanctions already started to affect um, Russian uh, market and Russian operations, uh, both like political, economically and business-wise. We can come back to that uh, later on in the discussion. But also to what extent uh, the West is prepared to go um, on that route and to what extent it is prepared now uh, in uh, uh, differently from 2014 to affect more ordinary people and to make sure this effect is uh, felt across the whole uh, of uh, Russia and maybe uh, prompting some uh, changes in the Russian position when uh, this comes to that. Just let me pick you up on that. So just a couple of questions from me. Within, within Russia, in the, within the Russian elite public discourse, what do you think 
Russians think is the end game that Putin is trying to achieve here? So um, uh, the public opinion is uh, still divided on that, but I would say that uh, quite a significant number of people, um, directly or indirectly, um, would kind of think of um, of this idea, which was voiced by Putin himself and others, that there's some kind of um, recreation of Soviet Union uh, could happen. And uh, many people would basically support this, maybe not openly, uh, but uh, through various other means. And that's why um, I think this was one of the key factors which basically um, prompted Putin to act in the end, uh, in the way how he uh, uh, acted. So, yeah, you can argue to what extent this uh, public opinion uh, polling and everything is uh, a reflection of reality, but it feels like, uh, yeah, to a certain extent, uh, people could support this idea. They might not support the means of how this being achieved. And it might, the public opinion can change if uh, there are lots of um, human casualties and financial impact. And everyone remembers what happened 40 years ago uh, in Afghanistan. But as soon as it goes uh, with um, kind of that not that much of this human uh, uh, impact, it might uh, garner some support, though it will be nothing uh, close to what we saw in 2014 with the Crimea when it caused like nationwide euphoria and it was relatively bloodless and, um, you know, quick. This time around, it's, it's a very different story and people might uh, realize this, 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 this is not, not, not a good Crimea was relatively uh, bloodless. And as you say, there was a sense of national euphoria in Russia. But there were also uh, quite high profile cases, particularly on social media, of, of, of a handful of villages and regions that were very much affected by loss of lives and by soldiers that died in what turned out what was perceived at the time to be slightly mysterious circumstances. And it turned out that they had, in fact, died in the operations in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. Uh, to what extent do you think Russian public opinion will be able to, 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 to sustain more visible and larger losses of lives of Russian troops over the course of the next month? Uh, yeah, as, as I just uh, said, uh, so, so far the effects have not been uh, felt uh, properly, but once they start to um, you know, go through uh, and people would realize uh, more and more that uh, what kind of human cost that uh, causes the numbers uh, of casualties and also the damage uh, and effect on their personal lives, uh, be it, um, you know, uh, disruption to normal lives in the border regions, uh, cancellation of flights all over southern Russia uh, or things like uh, the exchange rate uh, of the dollar and euro going through the roof because this is an important indicator uh, probably in Russia more than um, here in Europe. So people basically check the exchange rates of dollar and euro like which uh, we check the weather forecast. Just tell us what the what, what's the dollar ruble done today? So it's... Uh, <clears throat> Still not uh, close to 100 uh, rubles, uh, but they, they, they're uh, going up and down uh, and uh, it's around like 80 um, uh, rubles for uh, dollar, more than that now and 90 for, for euro. So it's uh, ruble, uh, the ruble has lost about 10-15% of its uh, value compared to November when the whole situation just started to um, uh, unravel. And... Um, Interestingly, both Russian ruble and Ukrainian hryvnia, uh, they follow each other very uh, closely, meaning that it's kind of similar effects on both economies. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just continuing um, uh, free fall on the days like yesterday, and then uh, goes up and down in a very volatile manner, uh, despite the efforts of the central banks to stabilize the currency. Uh, exchange and spending lots of uh, efforts, uh, like both like policy-wise, but also just spending uh, the reserves to, to uh, sustain the currency. Can you can you just give us some very specific examples of the types of countermeasures that you think the Russians might be prepared to introduce in response to the sanctions which have been rolled out over the course of the last forty-eight hours? So. Um, uh, First, I would say that the measures which were 
already discussed back uh, in 2014 and 2018, but haven't been implemented, like various trade um, restrictions, like export restrictions and import restrictions. So when it comes to import, it could be targeted at uh, Western uh, technology, Western uh, medicines, all sorts of um, uh, services and goods, which uh, could be uh, substituted uh, and also uh, something which might be supported by the public opinion to a certain extent. But also um, we've heard about uh, measures like a bit more far-fetching things, basically cutting Russia off from any obligations to honor, for example, intellectual property rights. Uh, and uh, th this might cause the whole uh, domino effect of basically um, yeah, uh, IP infringements and uh, things like this. Uh, but also very um, simple tit-for-tat measures, as we saw yes, uh, today, for example, when uh, Britain uh, banned Aeroflot uh, flights to Britain today. What do you think the Russians are going to do to, 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 to respond to these sanctions? Um, yeah, so the, these things I uh, already mentioned, but uh, uh, also they they might uh, kind of uh, they might need to activate uh, um, uh, things like uh, if, um, for example, um, uh, yeah, this um, U.S. tech companies operating now uh, in uh, Russia have been uh, tolerated uh, to a certain extent. Now the uh, uh, the scrutiny and pressure on them uh, might uh, increase dramatically. And this type of um, restricting both kind of uh, technological and political influence through this uh, could be definitely one, one of the routes. Uh, and um, economically on uh, kind of uh, on the domestic resilience, uh, there will be obviously calls for government support for companies affected uh, by sanctions, introduction of some specific uh, regimes to encourage, for example, import substitution, not only in goods, but in services, for example, uh, private uh, retail investors uh, to be um, given kind of easier ways to access Russian stocks just to support the stock market or cryptocurrencies, digital currencies and payment processing systems uh, in, in Russia, again, to substitute for uh, things which are lost through Western sanctions. So it's a whole range of measures. It's not necessarily just something to hurt um, the West, but also something to support uh, the Russian economy. Super. Okay. Thank you, Alexander. Right, Denzel, let's move on to you. Denzel, you spent time as a, as a special advisor sitting within the British Foreign Office, as well as spending a lot of time uh, engaging with European Union in, in institutions uh, in Brussels. Give us a sense of where you see the EU and the UK heading. So uh, the EU countries' uh, responses, you've got a kind of political and economic bucket and a more security bucket. And uh, as most of them are NATO members, uh, and two who aren't, Sweden and Finland, are, are being invited to this afternoon's NATO meeting. Security stuff is more being done through NATO than through the EU. But on the EU side, we had our council uh, last night, uh, and that saw uh, the agreement of, of some tough further sanctions beyond the initial response to um, the Russia's recognition of so-called People's Republics in Donetsk and Luhansk. And the responses made... Response is interesting not only for what was agreed, but for what wasn't agreed. And on what was agreed, we saw some tough uh, financial measures, roughly in the same ballpark as what the US has done uh, and what the UK is doing. Uh, and then um, uh, export bans on certain technologies, technologies and parts. And this is these are serious sanctions that are meant not just to send a message, but to impose a real economic cost on Russia. But uh, European countries are having to balance their uh, desire to impose a cost on Russia with their own economic uh, and other interests. And uh, most famously, particularly, of course, energy, where a lot of EU member states, have, in particular Germany, have large energy dependence on Russia. And there are not sanctions on energy. Uh, and this is going to give rise, I mean, this is not the end of the story, because the interesting things about this are all the further questions that are to come. Uh, there are also, according to the briefing from the European Council, and uh, this rather gleeful briefing is usually reliable. There were um, there have been carve-outs for other countries' economic interests. So uh, diamonds are not being sanctioned because the Belgians uh, want to be able to uh, trade diamonds with Russia. Uh, and luxury goods are not being sanctioned because the Italian prime minister, while he wants to 
be a strong member of, uh, in support of, of the West's values and part of Western solidarity. Is also worried about the Italian economy and Italy's ability to export uh, luxury goods uh, to Russia. Uh, and also thus far, anyway, there's not been agreement from a number of countries on the European side on uh, kicking Russia out of the uh, SWIFT system. Uh, and there are a mixture of good and less good reasons for that. Uh, the better reasons being that it may not be as effective as people think, uh, uh, that it will it takes Russia and encourage others to move out of the Western system. Uh, so you end up being less able to manage things in a crisis. Uh, but it would also make it much harder for uh, Russia to um, uh, for Russia to pay for uh, an exchange. Um, uh, things economically with Europe, so it would be an economic cost to a lot of a lot of uh, European uh, countries. Uh, so we should see the actual uh, fine detail of the sanctions probably in about a couple of hours, and we'll be able to, to look at exactly where they where they've ended up. Um, we can come to what it means for the future perhaps later in this conversation. But uh, as for the UK, uh, they also the Prime Minister announced sanctions yesterday in the House of Commons. Uh, in the same area, uh, important financial sanctions uh, and sanctions on on, uh, on dual use goods and, and other exports of other goods, as well as a ban on uh, on uh, on Russian uh, flights. And as we, as Alexander was mentioning earlier, that's been reciprocated, uh, and British flights to Siberia, uh, Russia, uh, have been have been banned. Uh, but this is now, it's quite a political football in Britain. Uh, and it's a political football because the government wants to be able to show that uh, Brexit is great and we can, Britain can do things by itself and it doesn't have to wait on the other Europeans. And uh, sanctions is supposed to be an illustration of that. Uh, however, the government was criticised for what was seen as an inadequate response in its first tranche of, uh, of sanctions for the um, the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk um, incidents. Uh, the Labour Party is looking to uh, pin uh, uh, what is seen as a lax approach to um, Russian money laundering, the fondest for Russian money on the on the Conservative Party, uh, and other critics of, the, of this government uh, are the same. So, for what comes next, all the pressure in the in the British political system is upwards on uh, further and tougher action. Denzel, let's, uh, let's come back to Europe. Um, continental Europe relies heavily on Russian gas, as we know. Uh, one of the consequences, or, or one of the logical consequences of taking forward uh, this, this, the sanctions would be to reduce the reliance on Russian gas uh, to the most extreme event, uh, block it, or certainly reduce the reliance on it. To what extent do you think the European political class uh, if the situation gets even worse, we'll be prepared to uh, accept uh, either more expensive or uh, less gas uh, in return for applying more pressure on Putin. Uh, well, the views vary across the the continent. Uh, if you're uh, if you're in France, then you have lots of nuclear energy, and you have fantastic energy security that way. So it is it's a particular question for countries like Italy and Germany and, and some others. I mean, clearly they don't want to have to do it because if they they were happy doing it, they'd have done it now. Uh, so there will be a lot of reluctance to do so. But you know, we are in the early stages of this crisis. There is more to come. There is unfortunately every reason to believe that the fighting is going to get worse. Uh, and there are a whole kinds of ways, depending on what happens in Ukraine. Violence could continue. This could turn into a bigger confrontation. So the question is going to return, and uh, with it, if uh, and there'll be American pressure as well. If the, the big question for the EU, which is still unanswered, is: Are we now in a completely different strategic world? If so, is it now a long-term strategic uh, imperative to for uh, the e all EU countries to wean themselves off uh, energy dependence on Russia? And if so, who's going to pay? Well. Germany can pay for itself. It's one of the richest countries. Others are not so rich. And what does this mean for the climate change policy? Uh, because the quickest ways to greater energy security are not very green. Uh, so there are, uh, this is going to also affect approach to um, uh, the Growth Stability Pact. Uh, the Eurozone uh, tries to make sure that it's stable, that um, no one is too profligate. There isn't a repeat of the crisis in 2008. Uh, this is uh, um, a politically neurotic question in many countries, the, whether the growth and stability pact should be loosened, or is the right response uh, going to be 
to have greater fiscal solidarity, movement towards a transfer union to make the uh, recovery fund not merely a one-off, but a permanent feature. Again, a politically explosive question, but that might be one answer. So uh, the EU will not be able to stay still in its response. What do you think Macron and Schultz think is a reasonable compromise with Putin? If Clearly, you ain't going to turn back the clock. So the Ukraine of Monday morning is not a Ukraine that we're going to return to anytime soon. But what form of settlement do you think they might be prepared to accept if hostilities were to cease and if some of the scenarios that Alexander was describing came to pass? I think that's uh, an, so far an untested question. I mean, Macron is in the midst of a the beginning of a general election campaign, but it's in the midst of a politically intense uh, period. Uh, he will certainly not want to look bad. He's gone out of his way to find a diplomatic solution. Um, uh, Schultz uh, will be worried that uh, if the crisis worsens, then it poses even more uncomfortable questions uh, for Germany. Um, it will it'll depend on the interplay of pressures of the Ukrainian reaction uh, to the continued crisis, uh, where this war goes, uh, where the US stands. Uh, I, I think there is... The biggest unanswered question is, is there going to be a new strategic vision for the West? And uh, if so, will there be the seriousness of intent to uh, persist in, in carrying on with, with policies, some of which, uh, indeed many of which, will be uh, costly and uncomfortable to see that policy uh, succeed? We are, were due to see some of the answers to these questions in, uh, in the more peaceful world we expected uh, in the European Council next month, which is supposed to consider the strategic compass uh, and Europe's uh, um, uh, approach to the to the whole question of its open strategic autonomy, which it's been debating for the past few years. Uh, we may know more then. Just talk us through a little bit how the balance within within the EU might shift or change between uh, attitudes in Eastern Europe, the Poles, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, and others who are clearly uh, the Baltic states who are clearly quite anxious about the situation and what you described there in, from the Belgium diamonds to the Italian Hamburg manufacturers, uh, it's slightly different attitudes the further you get from the uh, border with Ukraine, Belarus and Russia. Well, uh, in some ways, uh, the human suffering aside, this has been a helpful crisis for the Polish government because the Polish government has been in trouble on the rule of law issue, but here they are playing a, a leading role and a very, very respectable one. So I think we can expect the Commission to loosen, to lighten the pressure on the rule of law question, which is a hugely important one for the EU. Uh, and we will see leadership, I should think, from the Baltics, the Romanians playing an active role, uh, the Swedes uh, and the Finns likewise. So there'll be a shift of focus. Uh, Germany's stock has certainly fallen. Over the over the course of this crisis, uh, and uh, but Schultz is quite new. He's just put together a coalition government. His Green and FDP partners have a more idealistic approach to uh, to foreign policy than the SPD traditionally have. So uh, it's a big, big question for him. Macron has had kind of mixed reviews, uh, uh, including domestically for his diplomatic efforts. Uh, he has been. He is the, the big thinker behind the idea of European strategic autonomy. But European strategic autonomy is only going to work if it works for all member states. And France has traditionally found it quite difficult to really take account of, the, uh, of some of the Eastern countries. Uh, they all remember Jacques Chirac's remarks about them being mal élevé, badly brought up. So, uh, so a big test uh, for him too. Uh, I, it will be. It will be quite scratchy. It'll be difficult, uh, and uh, the EU is unlikely to look uh, the same the other side. Right. Thank you, Denzel. Um, Miranda, let's move on to you. You're currently sitting in Washington. Uh, again, similar questions to the, that I put to Alexander. Just give us a flavour of where you see the US heading uh, next on sanctions, where public opinion is in the states, both at a elite level within Congress and also. Uh, on the street itself, and where um, and, and the extent to which the fallout from the um, evacuation from Kabul and the fallout from Afghanistan is, is, is shaping the way that U.S. policymakers are 
engaging on the crisis? Sure. So three great questions. Um, the U.S. has tried to be very strategic in its application of sanctions. We saw that in, in yesterday, President Biden was very clear about setting out, you know, what red lines would potentially trigger new um, sanctions regimes. So the U.S. has released, um, you know, very aggressive sanctions on the U.S. Uh, or the Russian financial industry covering 80 percent of, of Russia's banking assets. That is very significant. Um, but he has withheld uh, kicking Russia off of SWIFT and targeting Putin uh, personally. So. Both of those are certainly on the table. He said as much in his his speech yesterday, and I think it is quite likely that we will see that those measures imposed um, as the as the crisis worsens. You know, President Biden, I think, would be certainly more inclined to remove Russia from SWIFT uh, than his European counterparts, and said that the reason that that hasn't been done yet is been due to uh, to pushback from European member states. I think if we, you know, look at the the impact that this will have on on companies operating in in Russia, U.S. companies specifically, you know, it is certainly likely that Western sanctions could could impact them. Um, you know, many companies will probably be considering pulling out their their staff from from Russia as well as as Ukraine. And I think that this will unfold, um, you know, as over a very long time, as both Alexander and Denzel have highlighted, this is barely, very early stages, um, and companies will need to take some time to, to get their arms around that. You know, if you look, take a step back and kind of look at the, the actions that the U.S. has imposed so far, you can see a pretty significant uh, philosophical shift in U.S. approach. You know, historically, the U.S. has been very, um, very quick to put boots, boots on the ground in, in instances where there are kinetic warfare, where there is kinetic warfare, you know, thinking of Iraq, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan. You've seen some, uh, you know, pretty deep red lines that the U.S. is not going to um, send its, its forces to, to Ukraine. And I think that that reflects the, the shift in um, public opinion in the U.S. You know, Americans are tired of these quote forever wars, and the appetite for uh, U.S. engagement abroad is is significantly lower. And that is something that you know, President Biden came into office, you know, promising to to pull back from these forever forever wars. And I think that you've seen that him try to to stick to that with this emphasis on on the sanctions regime. You know, that has been criticized. Um, you know, not just by by Republicans, but um, by others who think that the U.S. should have taken a more forceful role earlier on in, in the conflict, um, or at least impose sanctions earlier on um, in, in to, to Russia. Um, you know, that said, lawmakers are relatively, um, relatively aligned on what the U.S. should do. Uh, you know, both uh, Republican and Democratic leaders of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee are pushing for a uh, you know, more aggressive approach to, to sanctions, um, you know, specifically targeting President Putin as well as the the SWIFT issue. I think that the the comments that President Trump made earlier in the week um, about Putin being you know savvy and uh, this being a smart move is is more political theater than actually representing where the the Republican. Um, establishment, or at least those who are currently in office, um, signifies. I think, uh, you know, looking at what this impact will be on the, the 2022 midterms, um, you know, this is a major foreign policy, you know, failure, I would say, for President Biden in the vein of the um, botched pullout of Afghanistan. He ran on being, um, you know, a savvy foreign policy advisor, spending years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And um, while unfortunately he's been dealt a, a particularly difficult hand, that will certainly be an, an albatross that he'll carry uh, through to the elections. Hasn't Biden, though, called it right? Biden said all the way through the Russians are going to invade and the Russians invade it. He did. He, it's not that his analysis uh, or reading of the situation was incorrect. Um, it's that this happened on his watch. So, you know, unfairly or not, that will be something that he'll have to address during the during the midterm elections. So let's take a look at some uh, some of the impacts on corporates here from a U.S. 
point of view, I guess there are a handful of interesting sectors. Clearly technology, autos to some extent, maybe pharma and banking as, as sort of four areas. How do you see those different uh, bodies of opinion within the kind of US corporate world respond to the sanctions and to the, uh, the, the severe situation that you now see on the ground in Ukraine? Sure. So if we take the, the technology angle first, the US imposed um, pretty robust export controls on um, high-tech goods. So not just those being directly exported from the, the US to Russia, but any goods that are manufactured uh, with US machinery, uh, intellectual property, um, software, uh, there are restrictions on the exports to Russia. You know, so far the the reaction from you know the tech industries, we look at you know semiconductor industry in uh, particular is has been relatively muted. Um, you know, they've tried to to caution that Russia is not a you know tier one customer of American products in in that sense. Um, part of that is is political to to downplay some of the the impacts, but I think that uh, this will have a more long term effect. Um, it will take a while for companies to figure out how to to comply with these new export controls, and the the impacts of it will be felt further down the line when Russia is looking to upgrade its um, you know its machinery, its technology, et cetera. It won't be able to because it won't have access to certain um, U.S. high tech products. You know, on, on the other sectors, um, you know, the economic effects on, on U.S. businesses will certainly be, uh, be less. Uh, the U.S. is, is somewhat removed um, from the, the economic uh, impacts. And so the, the ripple effects will be felt less here at home. Um, you know, Biden is particularly concerned about the impact that the, the crisis will have on inflationary pressures. And I think we could see, um, you know, the, the Fed moving a little bit more cautiously than it would have on its monetary tightening. Um, and then in terms of you had mentioned, you know, autos, you know, pharma and banking, you know, out of the, those three, banking is, is certainly going to be the most uh, heavily impacted. And, um, you know, as we've seen with with the prioritization of President Biden's sanctions, he's uh, focused on the on the financial sector and kind of reserved these other sectors, you know, such as energy um, for for later actions. Right. Thank you, Miranda. Thomas, let's turn to you. Give us a, a sense of where you see this impacting on a wider set of uh, kind of global issues: financial markets, energy markets, uh, the Middle East, which is um, obviously an area that's going to be impacted. Just kind of paint a slightly broader picture as to where you see the ripple effects. Heading from the crisis. Oh, Ben, um, I think um, we have really seen some extraordinary uh, movements uh, on on energy markets, with oil prices now, uh, you know, rising above a hundred a uh, uh, hundred uh, dollars per barrel. And you could argue, you know, that's clearly benefiting um, oil producers, uh, many of which are in the Gulf. Um, but it also um, makes them seem to some extent, complicit in in, in Russia's uh, invasion, uh, because Russia is obviously also benefiting from uh, higher higher oil, oil prices. The US has um, already for quite a couple of months uh, lobbied uh, Saudi Arabia to actually um, uh, ramp up its production and to to depart from uh, the current uh, OPEC Plus um, production uh, a scheme, uh, which foresees um, an increase every month by uh, 400,000 barrels a day, uh, to actually, um, you know, move much more aggressively uh, and to to help stabilize uh, oil prices um, you know, significantly, perhaps below 100 100 dollars. Now, interestingly, the Saudis have been very cautious, and um, which is perhaps to some extent not surprising, given that. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, since he became uh, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, he has been uh, very much focused on that strategic oil alliance with Russia, and uh, he clearly sees, um, you know, an important uh, this as an important relationship uh, in in a world that is moving perhaps away from oil. Having said that, uh, DS is clearly still the most important partner for the Saudis as for most uh, or for all the the Gulf uh, or the dominant Gulf producers, uh, and and so they're clearly. Uh, is a, a question, um, you know, to what extent uh, the Saudis uh, can uh, can you know bow um, or can can uh, neglect that that U.S. pressure for long? Perhaps next week will be interesting um, to see how the OPEC Plus group will will respond uh, when they meet. Um, and um, I, I I assume that 
you know, the Saudis will remain cautious for now. Um, but clearly, there are scenarios um, that uh, that would make uh, the Saudis, you know, much more un uncomfortable with uh, the oil price uh, level and also uh, put it in a much more complicated political uh, position with uh, the US and Europe. So on, on that latter point, uh, as Denzel, I think, pointed out, um, I'm also quite uh, skeptical that, that SWIFT alone is uh, the so-called nuclear option that's always been or often been referred to. But of course, uh, sanctions um, that we have seen, uh, for example, against uh, Iran, which not only you know included SWIFT, but actually targeting the entire financial system, plus the central bank, and we clearly aren't there yet. And in fact, uh, US sanctions, even though they seem to be quite, um, quite tight against Spurbank have actually been much more lenient towards Gazprom Bank, which is the key, uh, the key bank to facilitate Russia's oil and gas exports. So, so under a scenario where actually you see those Iran-style broad sanctions, of course, um, uh, the world is in a much more complicated place. Russia accounts for eight to ten percent of global oil, oil exports, and and those would be at least in the short term uh, severely impeded. And under that scenario, I think. Um, uh, the Saudi uh, position that we see at the moment is coming uh, clearly un un untenable. So, um, as you can see, this, these movements on, 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 on the oil market have clearly wider geopolitical um, implications. Now, secondly, um, perhaps looking at China, I think, is quite interesting as well, because uh, the Chinese, obviously, they are the largest uh, energy importers, so they are clearly not benefiting from a high, high oil price, and they have a clear interest in in keeping um, you know themselves to some extent uh, out of the uh, the current uh, standoff between uh, Western uh, Western powers and and, and Russia, um, in part because uh, China's economy since the second half of last year has uh, seen severe headwinds uh, related to the to the uh, real estate sector and to the tech sector, to mention just uh, just a few. And so I think if, if we look at, at China's behavior at the moment, it's it's trying to tread this very fine line, if you will, perhaps speaking to different audiences in order to keep itself isolated from the potential economic effects of that standoff, at least for now. So it was quite interesting uh, to see if we look back at uh, the Russia-Chinese um, uh, meeting uh, during the Olympics, where uh, Putin and, and Xi spoke about I think a new or creating a new world order, which you would say is very much in line with with Putin's actions at the moment. Uh, but then again, Wang Yi speaking to Western audience in Munich, saying that the Minsk agreement should be adhered to. So I think you know the rhetoric that we see um, uh, is is very much um, you know uh, very much uh, aimed at speaking to those uh, different audience. Even though I think in in um, overall we have seen at least domestically in China an increasing shift. To, towards uh, a Russian line of saying that uh, Western powers were the aggressors, uh, didn't give diplomacy a chance, and 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 that the responsibility lies more with Western powers than actually with Russia, uh, which is China's uh, strategic strategic partner. Of course, in the long term, I think there's a really important, really interesting question: um, to what extent the crisis doesn't provide a big opportunity for for China? Because what it does is it pushes obviously Russia, much closer to China and makes Russia potentially, especially if we think about the nuclear option, much more dependent on, on China. Um, perhaps some, some in Russia think that, uh, you know, through their own perhaps uh, mechanisms to shield against uh, Western sanctions, for example, they have uh, since, um, since the Crimea um, invasion started to build up their own payments uh, infrastructure, um, but so has China too. And actually, China is is perhaps much uh, much keener and even better positioned to um, to uh, to roll out its its financial payments infrastructure uh, more more widely and to to use or to promote the use of uh, of its currency uh, more internationally than Russia is positioned to do so. So I think it's a really interesting relationship that could actually see uh, Russia much more closely aligned with a China-centric parallel, uh, if you will, financial system or payments infrastructure, at least. So maybe I stop here, Ben, if you have questions. Right, let's go. Thank you very much, Thomas. Let's take a look at some of the questions uh, that we've had here uh, in the chat. Um, 
perhaps we could just have your view, um, Thomas, uh, Thomas, just just uh, go into a little bit more depth on China and in particular what you think this might mean to China's approach to Taiwan? I mean, there has been a lot of uh, speculation about, uh, of course, uh, the, the question perhaps to some extent, uh, how, um, uh, to what extent what Moscow knew about, uh, what Beijing knew about Moscow's plans, to what extent both have actually coordinated um, some of their, their actions. And if you look, as I pointed out, at some of their rhetoric, there are actually some hints that there was some form of coordination. Actually, it would be quite surprising if she hadn't learned from Putin that um, that he planned this large-scale in- invasion. And then, of course, the question is, what would China um, perhaps expect or what advantages China would see for, for itself? Of course, it helps having uh, the West, uh, including the US, distracted um, by, by Russia uh, far away in, in, in Europe. Um, I think there's also the, the question to what extent actually um, you know, relationships uh, or relations with Iran will become more amicable or actually whether the current um, nuclear negotiations might actually become much more complicated and create another area of crisis, which then, of course, from a Chinese perspective, uh, creates uh, perhaps much more room in its own uh, region to be much more uh, aggressive, perhaps, towards um, towards uh, Taiwan. Um I'm not a military strategist, so I can't explain to you. Um, uh, well, my understanding is that the the military balance of power is still not uh, so much in in, in China's uh, favor at the moment. Um, but I think you know if if you look at uh, some of the developments of of China's uh, more more um, more aggressive power projection uh, way uh, beyond Taiwan, uh, I think it puts certainly Taiwan in a much more complicated much more complicated situation. Right, thank you. Um, let's put a question to both Denzel and to Alexander. We've had sanctions since since, since 2014, uh, to some extent. Um, we had a lot of rhetoric and more sanctions have been introduced over the course of the last um, a few days. Uh, and yet, um, Putin has kept going. He has um, moved into um, uh, Ukraine. And the question here is whether that the only language that Putin understands is is force and hard power, and the extent to which uh, that force and hard power, if it's not deployed by the Ukrainians, whether it might be deployed by other nations, and can you see other NATO members uh, introduce um, in being introduced into the conflict and seeking to take on? Uh, the Russians. Let me ha- let me ask you that uh, first, Denzel. So I think the, there's a consensus view in a lot of Western capitals that the reason why Putin is doing this is a mixture of regime interest and regime ideology. Regime interest because he sees a successful Western-oriented liberal democratic Ukraine as an existential threat to the survival of the current setup in the Kremlin. Because if uh, people see that working in Kiev. They might say, why don't we have it in Moscow? So given that he sees this as an existential threat to the longevity of his regime and presumably his personal safety, one can see why uh, economic deterrence has not succeeded. And then, of course, there is the uh, the nationalist ideology that Alexander was talking about um, earlier. So I think the answer is this will not deter him, uh, but it may have a long term effect if it is persisted with on uh, the behavior of other actors within the Russian system. We shall see. Uh, one of the perhaps the biggest questions which we don't know the answer is the length and strength of Ukrainian resistance. Certainly, there's an intention in a lot of uh, Western capitals that they will support that with uh, with weapons. Uh, that as that may or may not play out over the long run, that could have a hugely important effect. There's a question of whether Putin will stop at Ukraine. He's done something most people thought uh, it was virtually unthinkable. He will, he has uh, fully he is trying fully to take over another European country. If he's done that, might he do it elsewhere? Might he do it in Moldova? Uh, what about Finland and, and Sweden, which are not in NATO, which there's a growing debate about joining NATO? How seriously does he take uh, NATO in Article 5 thus far? It seems he does take it very seriously, but you know, might he want to test it? So there are a whole lot of worrying further thoughts uh, that make uh, that, that should make us think that this uh, this conflict is uh, is not over by a long run. Alexander, how, how comfortable do you think Putin would be with a Slavic resistance in Ukraine um, leading a, a long-term insurgency against 
Russian troops and forces there. Do you think that that's something that Putin is expecting or that Russian public opinion will be able to withstand? Uh, so uh, I think he might not realize completely, again, despite having all the information, sources and everything, uh, he might be still a bit um, delusional in a way that he would think that yeah, Ukrainian public opinion is still uh, very much aligned with uh, Russian, but the the change which has happened uh, in Ukraine in the last eight years were, with them becoming much more um, pro-Ukrainian and uh, anti-Russian, I would say, uh, might not be uh, been completely understood uh, in the Kremlin. So, yeah, this resistance could be uh, very, very significant. Uh, in um, other uh, countries, so in Belarus, for example, it's also uh, an interesting question to see how uh, it might unfold um, uh, there, because, yeah, for now it looks like it suits um, Lukashenko very well, but the people, uh, to what extent they might... Um, uh, resist uh, this because uh, with Ukraine uh, comes this kind of quiet um, annexation of Belarus, if you want, because it's now being used and in all uh, but the name. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, still we, we need to see that. Uh, and um, uh, also, I wanted just to pick up on another point you raised earlier when you asked this uh, question to both of us about um, kind of the effects or what what kind of what kind of language what kind of um, measures uh, could be more efficient there so we've seen to be honest that Russia has absorbed all this um, sanctions uh, effects quite quickly and to be honest built a lot of reserves and resilience um, for the next uh, waves of sanctions uh, they learned the lessons. Uh, from from 2014, as uh, Ukraine learned their lessons and uh, you know tried to build up the military uh, forces and uh, kind of the national uh, unity and so on. Um, what was missing from 2014 sanctions uh, was probably this profound effect on the general population. So those sanctions were still limited compared actually to what we are witnessing now. Um, personal sanctions are uh, fine uh, in some uh, sense, but then uh, all these oligarchs who were sanctioned, they got um, a lot of loyalty and compensation actually from the government. So this uh, sanctions did not have that much effect as they might have been envisaged. And sectoral sanctions as well, they uh, affected some of the areas, some of the industries, some of the businesses, but not the general population. If now it goes further down the line, this is what might probably shift the mindset there. But even with this, I wouldn't be 100% sure. Do you think that Russian public opinion, Miranda touched on this in her remarks, do you think Russian public opinion would be able to withstand Apple being told to block iOS being used by Russian phones, whether Netflix would be sold, told it could no longer serve content to Russian IPs, Google being told it should block all searches from Russian IPs. Do you think that if through the sanctions, Russians were denied the kind of services that they've come to enjoy over the course of the last couple of decades, do you think that would have an impact on public opinion in Russia? Yeah, I think it will uh, to a certain extent. And this is exactly the measures uh, I was uh, alluding to when I said that they need to affect general population in, uh, uh, in, in this sense, because, you know, when uh, your iPhone suddenly becomes dumb and you cannot access the things you kind of your lifestyle is changing more dramatically uh, than it changed in 2014 when people were just basically cut off from French Parmesan uh, and, uh, you know, Polish apples. Uh, so when uh, kind of every um, aspect of your everyday life being kind of affected and not properly substituted. So this might uh, bring back not good memories about the Soviet Union, but bad memories about the Soviet Union when all this uh, kind of domestic equivalents of uh, Western uh, goods and services were not that great and uh, also not accessible. So uh, this kind of uh, archetypes, probably the Russian public opinion would be uh, much more difficult to tolerate uh, than, than uh, anything else.
Okay, last question for you, Alexander, then I'm going to turn to Miranda. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians that live in Russia. Do you think that the Russians have considered what they might do? There have been high-profile terrorist attacks, mainly by Chechens, over the course of the last 20 years. Could you see the uh, similar a repeat of that led by Ukrainian forces in Russia over the course of the next couple of months? Is that something that you think the Russians have have considered? I think it has been considered, um, but again, due to this kind of mentality and perception of Ukrainians being much closer and like-minded uh, to Russians than even um, the, the uh, Russian-owned um, nations, including North Caucasus, um, uh, nations and uh, Chechen and others, uh, they might underestimate uh, the extent of um, you know, grief and uh, desire to somehow, um, uh, you know, to, to, to express uh, uh, revenge and other things. So there might be some kind of uh, things like this, maybe, uh, again, not immediately, but um, yeah, I would not exclude uh, this at all. And just general uh, kind of everyday uh, tension and some kind of animosity between people. Uh, and this, this is going to definitely be on the rise and it will not be uh, good uh, to anyone. Thank you, Alexander. Right, Miranda, uh, Trump. Trump has said that this wouldn't have happened if he was still president. Uh, Trump uh, is clearly going to look to use this for his own purposes. Where do you see him going with the debate? Where is he going to both use this for domestic opinion within the US, but also what role might you think he might try and play uh, over the course of the next couple of months? Sure. So first, I think, um, you know, the fact that this wouldn't have happened if President Trump it was, uh, it, you know, in office, I, I don't think that that is a, a valid argument. Um, I don't think establishment Republicans believe that that is a valid argument. Um, but I do think it would have changed the, the conversation in the US. I think Trump will use this moment to push for um, a continuing breakage in, in the Republican Party. So you have establishment Republicans that are currently in office who have you know, traditional hawkish views on uh, you know, U.S.-Russia relations. However, you have a, a new crop of uh, Republicans that are uh, currently in, in primaries or, or running for office, you know, thinking of, of J.D. Vance, who's running for Senator Rob Portman's seat in Ohio. And he has hewed pretty clo closely to uh, President Trump's stance that, uh, that um, you know, Putin is, uh, you know, just a, a strong man doing what he, he should and that is a, a pretty significant break. And I think that you'll see President Trump trying to use these um, to use this narrative to support, um, you know, his acolytes in the in the midterm election and try to get them into office. And I think that this will pose, um, you know, pretty significant problems for for the rebel Republican Party, um, you know, as it goes forward. Right. I think we're going to wrap there because we're nearly at the top of the hour, and because my colleague Alexander needs to go and appear on Bloomberg. So thank you, uh, all of you, for joining. Thank you, my colleagues, uh, in particular. Thanking all of the clients that joined us. Please continue to follow our work. We have been publishing regular client notes on this over the course of the last few days. We will continue to do so. We've been having regular calls with clients and we have a whole wide range of work for international businesses trying to understand and follow what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. So please keep in touch. Uh, we will no doubt continue to do calls like this over the course of the next couple of weeks and months. And I wish you all a good weekend. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.